856, if you'll mark your books, to page 856 for the invitation. 856. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you today. Good to see all your faces. I'm glad you made it out this morning. For the visitors we have in the crowd, we do want to say welcome. We are glad that you were here with us. Hope you've enjoyed the service thus far. I want to thank the leadership for the opportunity to speak this morning, and I I want to thank you for showing some interest in the subject of of apologetics. And uh, if if you weren't here last week, Ethan talked to us about some apologetics in reference to the evidences for creation. And today we're going to be covering two topics. Specifically, we're going to focus on the subject of truth and then the inspiration of Scripture. And as far as the remaining schedule goes for this series, next week Ethan's going to be back up here and he's going to be talking about manuscript evidence. How can we know the translation of the Bible that we have today is correct? Okay, so that's what Ethan's going to cover next week. And then two weeks from now, I'll be back up here and we're going to cover difficult questions from an atheist. And we've identified a couple of really tough questions that center around morality and that we're going to cover that morning. To start out today, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to make a defense, an apologia. And that's what that word there for make a defense means. It simply means to do just that. Make a reasoned defense that Christianity is true. Our goal in this series is to arm you with the tools and the confidence necessary to be able to make a defense, to give an answer. You know, we are surrounded by a world that rejects the Bible, a postmodern world that rejects the Bible, rejects God, rejects truth even. So we have to be ready to give an answer, if not for others, maybe just for ourselves, because we all have questions. We all have doubts, and we shouldn't shy away from those things, and that's what this series is all about. Today, to start out, we're specifically going to cover truth. Is there such thing as truth? Can truth be known? And then once we've laid some foundations, we're going to chat about why we believe that the Bible is truth. Now, all the sermons, as far as resources go, all the sermons are going to be on the website, So if you weren't here last week, please go check out Ethan's talk about creation. Um, I'll tell you, me and Ethan are happy to share resources. Uh, Really, apologetics has become a passion of ours over the past couple years. I remember a couple years ago, I came to Ethan and I said, Ethan, I just read this book called A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's awesome. I want to build a sermon about this book, A Case for Christ. And Ethan goes, yeah, you mean like apologetics? I'm like, I don't know what apologetics is, Ethan, but... But since then, this has really become a passion of ours. So we're excited to present this information to you. But please understand, the information that we are presenting throughout this series is the result of of lifetimes of scholars who have spent their entire lives studying this material. So there is so uh, so many great resources out there for what we are studying in the next uh, few weeks. If you were here last week, you got to hear Ethan talk about why we believe that there is a God. He talked about the cosmological argument, that there must be a cause for things that exist. He talked about the teleological argument, the fine-tuning of our universe. If there is fine-tuning in our universe, there must be a fine-tuner. 
And then he also talked about the moral argument, the concept of good and evil. If the moral laws exist, then there must be a moral law giver. But before we go any further, I just want to say this. You know, for many people, faith simply means gusto. You know, for many people, faith means blindness. It means irrationality. I'm here to tell you that the validity of faith has nothing to do with passion or sincerity. You know, if I have passionate and sincere faith in ice, thin, thin ice, when I walk out on that thin ice, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fall right through it. But if I have a little bit of faith in really thick ice, when I walk out on that thick ice, it's going to hold me up. You see, the validity of faith has nothing to do with passion or sincerity, but rather the validity of faith is determined by the reliability of the object that I place my faith in. So for the follower of Christ, faith is not a blind leap. Rather, faith in Christ takes seriously the evidence that we have at our disposal. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is not a blind faith. Now the truth is, you weren't there to follow Christ 2,000 years ago. You weren't there to see Christ risen from the dead and see all the miracles that He did. So what do we do as Christians? I mean, do we just shut our eyes and just blindly believe? No. That's not what Christians do. We don't just believe God because the Bible says God. No, instead, we examine the reliability of the claims of the Bible using things like logic and using history and using science because we have great amounts of evidence for why we believe what we believe, that it's true. For instance, evidence is for the creation. Evidence is for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evidence is for truth and logic. And evidence is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But you know, sometimes no matter how much evidence and truth that you give someone, sometimes people don't want the truth. You know, some people reject that truth can even be known. In John chapter 18, we see a conversation between Pilate and Jesus before the crucifixion. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This morning that is the question for us. What is truth? Please understand, as Christians, we need to be truth seekers. Make no bones about it. This is something our world today really struggles with. Relativism runs rampant in our culture right now. There are so many people out there saying things like, you got your truth, I've got my truth, all truth is relative. Have you heard people say things like that? One thing I'd like to teach you this morning is the law of non-contradiction. This is a law of philosophy that says that two opposite assertions can't be true at the same time and same place. Otherwise, it would be a contradiction. It'd be like me saying that Christmas is on December 25th and Christmas is on July 25th. They can't both be true at the same time. And if one is true, that makes the other false. And guys, I'm just being honest here. Our culture, our schools, our, the internet... Even our government is full of false claims about truth right now. Contradictory claims. And in order for us to defend the faith, we have to understand this stuff. We've got to at least understand what's being taught to our young people in schools. 
and be able to refute it if it's false. So let's go through a few of these uh, contradictory claims for a moment. First, you might hear the claim, there is no truth. This is popular in our world today. Another way of saying that is there is no such thing as absolute truth. This stuff is embedded in our culture, folks. So much more than we even think. I mean, how about the claim, all truth is relative? This scares me even more. You've got your truth, I've got my truth. I mean, think back to the moral argument that Ethan covered last week. What are the implications of a statement like, all truth is relative? What are the implications of that statement if you take it out to its logical conclusion? Well, you know, Hitler, he was just living his truth. He was just doing what he thought was right. You see, if there is no truth, if all truth is relative, then there's no difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa. You see how foolish that claim is? Another false claim that I think young people are probably seeing more than anything else right now is claims about my truth. They'll hear the statement, there isn't the truth, only my truth. Guys, tell that to Hitler. Tell that to Stalin. Tell that to white American slaveholders. They were just living their truth. See, it's a foolish statement to make. And lastly, someone might say, it's true for you, but not for me. That's how they might phrase it. It's, it might be true for you, but I've got my own truth. In Frank Turek's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he goes through many of these claims and shows people how to refute those claims with what he calls the roadrunner tactic. And you can use this to defeat uh, relative claims about truth. For example, let's say someone does say there is no truth. Well, you can flip that claim on its head and you can ask them, well, hey, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true. But it claims to be true. You see, the statement there is no truth is a self-defeating statement. It violates the law of non-contradiction. It contradicts itself. It'd be like if I said, hey guys, I can't speak a word in English. You'd say, well, you just said that in English, Zach. How about there is no such thing as absolute truth? You turn that on its head and you say, well, isn't that an absolute truth? You see, the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, is in in and of itself a truth claim. So you would say, well, isn't that an absolute truth if you say that there's no absolute truth? How about all truth is relative? You would turn around and you would ask them, well, is that a relative truth? If you say all truth is relative, isn't that an absolute truth statement? And then finally we get to my truth. There isn't the truth, only my truth. And you would say, well, is that just your truth or is that the truth? Okay, the last one here. It's true for you, but not for me. Using the roadrunner tactic, you flip that. Well, is that true for everybody? Guys, what's the truth here? Because if it's true for you, but not for me, then it isn't true for everybody. And if it's not true for everybody, then it isn't the truth. Let me ask you this. When it comes to math class, when it comes to math, is there such things as relative truth? You know, when your teacher gives you an F on a math test, can you go to your teacher and go, hey, sorry, teach, I I was using my own math. That might be true for you, but not for me. No, that's not going to work. You're going to get an F if you try that. One plus one will always equal two. 
because there are transcendent laws that exist in our universe, and those laws aren't relative. Laws of science, laws of logic, laws of morality. So it isn't your truth or my truth. There is only the truth. But you know, many times I think people reject truth just like they reject Christianity. Not because of the lack of evidence, but because of the heart. You know, we need to understand there is so much evidence out there for why we believe what we believe, but still, so many people reject it. Why? Well, it's not because it's not true. Oftentimes, it's because people don't want the truth. You know, people want to live the way they want to live. And so, like Romans chapter 1 says, in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Our culture suppresses truth about God every day. That's why it's so important that we be defenders of truth. So make an argument. Make an apologia, a defense. And now, this morning that we've made a defense of truth, we understand that truth uh, absolutely can be known. And we've got to ask Pilate's question. If there is truth, then what is it? 2 Peter chapter 16, and verse 21 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, the truth is, folks, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. Instead, we follow the one true and living God who has revealed to us truth. Now, how did He reveal truth to us? Well, He did it through men who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They saw the miracles. They saw the prophecy fulfilled. And then those same men then spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we come to this morning what is known as the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And we see this idea repeated throughout the New Testament by Jesus and His disciples. For example, Jesus in John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, He's praying to God for His disciples, and He says, Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. He's saying, God, Your Word is it. It's the standard. It's where the buck stops. And Jesus expresses this idea repeatedly. Jesus says in Matthew 19, also while he's being tested by the Pharisees, I mean, you know the Pharisees, they're always testing Jesus. And in Matthew 19, they ask him, hey, is divorce okay for any reason? Now, we're not going to answer that question this morning. But in verse 4, Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, have you not read? That was Jesus' answer. Have you not read was his standard for truth. And here we see Jesus holds the Pharisees accountable to divine revelation. In similar fashion, Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God, the Old Testament and the New Paul here is accurately reflecting his master Jesus when he says all Scripture is theonoustos. That's the Greek there. It means it's God-breathed. All of that is reflecting Jesus' own teaching. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? 
Folks, do you want divine revelation this morning? Do you want God to speak directly to you? Well, read his word. That was Jesus' view. Read the Bible. But here's the thing. To the non-believer, to the atheist, the doctrine of inspiration is foolishness. 2 Timothy 3.16, that doesn't mean anything to the atheist, unfortunately, because they don't believe in the Bible in the first place. So, outside of the Bible, what's the evidence that validates the truthfulness of these claims of inspiration? Well, the scriptures and events that occurred in the New Testament can be verified through external means using logic and history and archaeology. And this morning we have several lines of evidence, of testimony that we're going to go through uh, as to the points, points that, uh, to the veracity of the Bible. Okay? For instance, early testimony. Brother Ethan's going to talk much more about this next week, so we're not going to hit on this too heavily, but I will say that I personally believe that most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before 70 A.D. I'm going to repeat that again. But I will say that I personally believe that most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before 70 A.D. Why? Well, it's because of the destruction of Israel in 70 A.D. It's totally absent in the New Testament. There's not a whiff of it. Now, it's predicted... Jesus predicts it in Matthew 24, but nobody ever says, look, it happened. Now let me ask you a question. Suppose that you are reading a book about Lower Manhattan, and it talks about how the World Trade Towers were built in the 70s. But then there's no mention that the World Trade Towers were being destroyed by Muslim terrorists on 9-11. When are you going to assume that book was written? Well, it would be before 9-11. Let's say you're reading a book about the the biography of Dr. Martin Luther King and you read about his whole life and then the book ends and there's nothing in there about his assassination. When are you going to assume that book was written? Well, it'd be before his assassination. The same thing is going on in the New Testament. The New Testament, 70 AD was far more traumatic to those people than 9-11 was in our lifetime. I mean, they lost their entire country. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of their countrymen were killed. Josephus called it the greatest war of all time. They lost their entire country, and yet nothing is mentioned in the New Testament documents about 70 A.D. What does that lead you to believe? That they had to have been written before 70 A.D. Meaning that the documents are reliable because they were written in the same lifetime of the, as the actual historical events. Meaning that the writers of the New Testament were there to witness it with their own eyes. Secondly, we come to eyewitness testimony. The major New Testament writers record the same basic events with their own unique observations. There is consistency in their writings. And in the New Testament alone, they cite at least 30 real historical figures who have been confirmed by ancient non-Christian writers in various archaeological discoveries. Historical figures like Pilate or King Agrippa. And then Luke, in the second half of Acts, drops in at least 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. And he includes several others in his gospel. One example of a historically confirmed eyewitness detail would be Luke's proper description of Philippi as a Roman colony in Acts 16, verse 12. How did he know that? Well, he had to have been there. 
Or the fact that he lists uh, that there's a synagogue in Corinth in Acts 18 verse 4. So we have all these eyewitness details that have been confirmed by history and archaeology. John includes at least 59 historically confirmed details in his gospel. One that I think is really cool is the Pool of Siloam. In John chapter 9, verse 7, Jesus tells a blind man to go wash in the pool, and then the blind man comes back able to see. Well, archaeology now confirms the existence and location of the pool, proving that John must have been there to witness the event. You see, eyewitnesses were huge back then, and they're still huge. When you think about all of history, all of history is based off of eyewitness accounts of what happened. Like the Boston Tea Party. It's because there were people there that saw it and recorded it and passed on the information. We didn't make up that story. Our criminal justice system is highly dependent to this day on eyewitness testimony to establish truth. Something else that's neat about the eyewitness testimony is the unity of the eyewitnesses. The Bible is made up of 66 books written by approximately 40 men, all being written approximately 1,600 years, over the course of 1,600 years, and yet there is perfect harmony. Completely different backgrounds. Some were fishermen, some were physicians, some kings, even a tax collector. The books were written from different places. Some were written in the wilderness, to palaces, behind prison walls. They were written in different time periods, times of war, times of peace, times of joy, in times of despair. Also, the books were written across three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and they were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they were written in a variety of literary styles, including poetry and song and biography. And even with all the differences in the writers of the New Testament and the Old Testament, there is no discrepancies or contradictions. Now, the skeptic will say that there are, but not if you read it in context. Not if you understand that the writers were their own people, with their own points of view, with their own audiences and their own way of communicating. And when you read it in context, there are no legitimate contradictions. Can you imagine that? What would happen this morning if we passed out a sheet of paper to everyone in the audience today? And we asked you to write down a short story about what happened during the pandemic. Okay, what happened during 2020? Tell your story about it. And then we went around and we collected everyone's sheets of paper and their short stories, and we started comparing notes. What would we have? It would be all over the place, guys. I mean, can you imagine all the conspiracy theories and different takes on COVID? Some of us locked down, some of us didn't. Some of us wore masks, some of us didn't. Some of us got the shot and some of us didn't. But not the Bible, not the Word of God. There is consistency there. How do you explain that? And how do you explain that with all the small, trivial, minute details contained in the New Testament? They don't contradict each other one time. Not only do they agree, but they write in a smooth, harmonious way. We would expect it to be very choppy. You see, across the entire Bible, we have a united theme. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah has come, and the Messiah is coming back. There is unity all throughout the Bible. How about embarrassing testimony? Now, some people call this unflattering testimony. The rule for this testimony goes like this. If, if there is something in the text 
that is embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why? It's because people don't like to make up unflattering details. It might ruin your reputation. It might make you look bad. It might make it hard to start your own religion. If you're making up a story, then you're going to have things in there that are going to make you look good. But repeatedly, the disciples are blind to what is right in front of their faces. It's embarrassing. They never understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. Have you ever noticed that? In John chapter 12, verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Over and over again, Jesus tells them one thing and they fail to understand it. Jesus says, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. Hey guys, I'm, I'm going to be killed soon. And hey, I'm going to rise on the third day. And every single time, the disciples, they don't get it. The disciples are also portrayed as uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus, not once, but twice, in his greatest hour of need. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then they make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. Who buried Jesus? It wasn't his disciples. It was a member of the Sanhedrin court, the very court that sentenced Jesus to die. Joseph of Arimathea was the one who buried Jesus, not his friends, not his disciples. Do you know how bad that makes them look? The disciples are also rebuked. Peter's called Satan by Jesus. You think Peter made that up? And then later in the New Testament, Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a theological issue. Why would Paul tell Peter that he's wrong? And why would they put that in the scriptures if they're just making up a story? It turns out if you look at the New Testament epistles, the letters, most of them are about problems. They're mostly about embarrassing sin issues. And then lastly, the disciples at certain points are portrayed as being cowardly. Peter denies Christ three times after he says he wouldn't. And then the disciples run away and hide while Jesus hangs on the cross. Now what man is going to write down that he was hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? No, if the apostles were, if the apostles were trying to deceive, they would have told a much braver and grander story than that. They wouldn't make up the fact that they were hiding and the girls were the brave ones and went down to the empty tomb. This is not an invented story. It turns out the Bible is filled with embarrassing details about the authors, from Adam and Eve all the way to the apostles. Next this morning, we're going to talk about prophetic testimony. What that means is that there are Old Testament prophecies that prophesy about future events. You have Old Testament prophecies about world events. Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And Jesus in Matthew 24 makes a prophecy about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which we now know happened. But if I only had one prophecy to make my case on for the inspiration of Scripture, it would be Isaiah 53. And I would encourage you, please go check out Isaiah 53 in your free time. It's beautiful. It describes Jesus as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This passage here accurately describes what Jesus did for us on the day of the crucifixion. Let me ask you about that last line there. And they made his grave with the wicked. What does that mean? 
Well, who was Jesus hanging on the cross with? Wicked people, thieves. And then it says, with a rich man in his death, who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was buried in his tomb, a rich man. 700 years before this event took place, Isaiah prophesied it in detail. The Bible is full of expected and fulfilled predictions. But hey, don't just take my word for it. Don't take the Bible's word for it because we actually have evidence outside of the Bible. There are 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life that mention Jesus and the apostles very briefly. For example, we have the writings of Josephus in the antiquity of the Jews. I am not a scholar about this kind of stuff, but I know several of you are familiar with Josephus. Well, Josephus writes, in summary, that the Christians claimed that Jesus was the Christ. And during his life, he did many wonderful works and drew many people to him, and that because of this, he was condemned to the cross and rose again on the third day. Now, how could this be invented when you even have non-Christian writers admitting that the disciples in the first century believed all this? That they were alive to witness it all? And under intense persecution, the Christian church exploded all over the world. They really believed this stuff. You see, the disciples would go on to die horrific and excruciating deaths for the cause of Christ. The argument for excruciating testimony goes like this. These men were in a position to know whether Jesus had risen from the dead. They died brutal deaths when they could have just saved themselves by saying, no, you're right, it didn't happen. They, were, they lived excruciating lives in hiding. These Jews who thought they were God's chosen people, I mean, they could go back to being a Jew, but instead they devoted themselves to the cause of Christ. And then, for many, they were thrown in jail, if not worse, much worse. You know, during the Roman persecution, Christians were often torn to shreds by dogs, or nailed to crosses, upside down even. And under the rule of Nero, he would use the Christians as human candles to light his garden parties. But the apostles in the early church went to their deaths anyways, because they believed what they saw with their own eyes. The apostles and disciples constantly put themselves in harm's way to make sure the gospel would spread far and wide, and it did. But why would they put themselves in harm's way unless Jesus had risen from the dead? See, they had no motive to do it. What did they have to gain? Nothing. They had everything to lose. What could their motive have been? In J. Warner Wallace's book, Cold Case Christianity, he talks about three motives for any crime. Wallace is a retired homicide detective, and he says that any time I find a dead body and I'm investigating a murder, there's only three reasons the crime took place. There's not a thousand, just three, or a combination of the three. Sex, money, and power are always the issue. Sex, money, and power are always the issue. Those are the universal motivators. But here's what often happens. We'll take shortcuts to get to those things. So the argument goes, if the New Testament writers were making all this up, what was their motive? Seriously, what motive could they have had? I mean, were they real popular with the ladies? No. Paul says that it's good to remain single, just like he was. Well, did they get money for saying Jesus rose from the dead? No. Paul didn't even want money from the church because he didn't want it to get in the way of people coming to Christ. 
Well, did they get power? They had to have gotten power. No, in fact, they got the opposite. Paul had the power when he was a Pharisee, but afterwards, when he becomes a Christian, he becomes the persecuted. You see, there is no motive for them to make this up. And they had every motive to say that it didn't happen. So why would they die for a known lie? Now you might say, Zach, if you're going to say that martyrdom is evidence for Christianity, then don't you have to say that martyrdom is evidence for other religions like Islam? No. But why? It's because there's a large difference between Muslim martyrs of today and the Christian martyrs of New Testament times. You see, the Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything that tells them that Islam is true. They just have faith. The New Testament martyrs of New Testament times, however, they witnessed Jesus. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. You know, many people will die for a lie that they think is true. But nobody will die for a lie that they know is a lie. They're not making this up, folks. The New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not. And they went to their deaths anyways because it was true. They abandoned their long-held Jewish sacred beliefs and practices and they adopted new ones. And then they didn't deny that testimony at the threat of death either. The last thing I'm going to say about the Bible and New Testament this morning is this. And for those of you who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error, what I'm about to say might catch you off guard. Christianity is not true because a series of documents that we put under one binding called the Bible says it's true. You see, the statement the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true is a bad argument. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. Now you say, how could that be? Because Christianity did not originate from a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. You wouldn't even have a New Testament unless Jesus had risen from the grave. In fact, you could put it this way, the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers because they believed what they saw. They believed what they heard and what, what they touched with their own fingertips. It wasn't a blind faith, but a faith built on their own experience with the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, I grew up in church my entire life. I'll admit to you, I've never known much different. I'm sure many of you are in the same boat as me this morning. You've been a Christian since you were a baby. But you know, there comes a time in all of our lives where we are faced with some really tough questions about our faith. And oftentimes, this is happening earlier and earlier in school for our young people. Science class, biology class, teachers who openly profess to be atheists, students and teammates who reject God. And then we take these young people out of school and we send them off to more school, to college, or we send them off into the workplace and they are just so unprepared for what they're going to face. You know, I remember in my freshman year of college, in world history class, I had a professor who spent an entire class explaining to us that there's no such thing as God. And then at the end of that class, he went around to all the students and had us raise our hand. He said, raise your hand if you actually believe that there's a God. 
You know, our young people are going to face tremendous opposition to the faith. So I think it's important that we examine our attitude toward how we handle their questions and their doubts and the way we prepare our young people to go out into the real world. You know, one of the most famous apologists that I have heard of during this time of my study is Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote books in the 70s like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter. I'm sure some of you have probably heard of Josh McDowell. This guy's the most popular apologist that I've ever heard of. Well, Josh McDowell would go on to have a son named Sean. And Sean McDowell would follow in his father's footsteps and become an apologist. I was watching a video the other day with Sean McDowell in it, and he's telling this story about growing up and growing up with the dad who's this famous apologist. You know, my dad, he's such a strong believer, he never questioned his faith. But you know, at some point in Sean's life, he began to question his faith. And he said, you know what, I, I just don't know if I believe this stuff. You see, Sean was in college, and it was the early 90s. And for the first time in his life, he came across these really thoughtful and sophisticated and compelling people that he wasn't prepared to give an answer to. And it rocked him. It rocked his faith. And so Sean felt that it was time to be honest with his father, Josh. And so he takes his dad out for coffee. And they sit down and he says, Dad, I just got to be honest with you. I want to know truth, but I'm just not sure I really think Christianity is true. And Sean says, I'll never forget. My dad, he didn't miss a beat. He looked at me and he said, son, I think that is great. And Sean is just so blown away. He's going, dad, did you hear what I just said? And Josh McDowell looks at his son and he says, son, you can't live life based off of my convictions. You've got to seek after what you think is true and follow it. Now, your mom and I are going to love you no matter what. That's never going to change. But hear this. Don't reject the things you've learned growing up just out of spite or to rebel or out of indifference. Only reject it if you're convinced that it's not true. Sean says that's one of the things that his parents really built into him growing up. That above all, out, above all else, whether politically, historically, philosophically, or religiously... We follow things that are true. We are truth seekers. And when we ask the question, why am I a Christian? Why do I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Ultimately, it comes back to this question of truth. Now, when we assert that the Bible is true, does that mean we have all the answers? Of course not. Does that mean that I don't have any doubts? No. I have questions, folks. I have doubts. And on the really bad days, I struggle more than others. But I'm a Christian because when it's all said and done, I actually really believe that the Christian story is true and that there is incredible evidence to back it up. But you know, evidence alone is only going to get you so far. In J. Warner Wallace's book that I mentioned earlier, Cold Case Christianity, he talks about how it's one thing to believe that something is true, but it's another thing to believe in something, to trust in something when push comes to shove. You know, for a police officer, they have a belief that their bulletproof vest is going to be able to stop a bullet. But when they eventually have to trust in that vest to do its job, they move from belief that to belief in. And guys, I can give you all the evidence in the world this morning, but it's only going to get you so far. But until you decide to actually start living your life for Christ, 
the evidence is just it's just merely data but the neat thing about the bible is that while it tells this beautiful story about man and our fall at the beginning of creation and our path back to god while it tells this story and while you read the bible the bible is reading you and once you realize that our spiritual condition is actually being documented it's actually being recorded on the pages of scripture things change And then you realize that when Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, he is accurately reflecting our desperate need for salvation because of the sin in our lives. We need to realize that when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John is explaining to us that Jesus would be the one to come and provide salvation to a lost and dying people. But in order for that to happen he would have to give up his life in the most brutal way possible. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, fighting for every last breath, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And suddenly we realize that Jesus did it all out of love for us. And while we mocked him and sinned against him, and while we literally nailed him to that cross with our own sin, he did it for you and me. You know, while Jesus was here on earth, he made several claims about truth. In fact, Jesus at one point says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, you can have belief that all day long. You can have belief that in anything. But for you to have belief in, then you need to obey the gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be buried with him in baptism and be raised to walk in newness of life. Start to live your life different. Live your life for Him. I appreciate your kind attention this morning. You know, if there's anyone in the audience today who could use the prayers of the church, we would love to pray with you, whether it's a sin issue, whether it's just something you're struggling with in your life, maybe you've got some family issues, we would love to pray with you and stand with you and love on you. Maybe this morning, you've recognized that you've got some belief that Christianity might be true. But maybe you haven't taken that next step to obey and have belief in. We would love to help you with that. We would love to study with you if that's something you're interested in. Or maybe this morning you have belief that, and you've had it for a long time, but finally this morning you realize that you need to do something about that belief, and you need to take that next step. If there be one of either case, we ask that you come down to this front pew as we stand and as we sing. Free to spoil.